trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm pleased every every week to welcome Eric Peters from epautos.com to the program. Eric, great to have you on board once again. Well, thank you, Brian. And again, apologies for the phone issue. I hope my voice doesn't sound like I'm wearing a face diaper. No. No, not that anyone, <laughs> I don't think anyone would ever accuse you of, of, of wearing the face diaper. But, uh, man, there are so many moving parts in the world around us right now. Where do you want to begin yep. today? Well, I saw something just a few moments before we began our conversation, and uh, I scanned CNN as you know, loathsome as that is. I put a clothespin on my nose to uh, prepare myself before I do it, and I have my bucket ready to upchuck into it just in case. <laughs> but I read an article. They're, they're, they're claiming now that the you know now that the uh, the Moronicon fever is dying down, and they're losing the uh, the basis for terrifying people on that account. Apparently, there's a new variant going around. And it specifically affects kids. Now, here's where it gets interesting. They call this thing multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And there's an acronym that goes with that and and a hyphen. And the curious thing, my immediate reaction to that was, well, hmm, ha. So they're they're saying that kids are now beginning to suffer from some sort of a systemic inflammatory response within their bodies. And that's exactly uh, one of the side effects that's been associated with the vaccines. And, of course, kids are probably among the, the most vaccinated cohort because, you know, they're compelled to by the school systems in order for them to be able to go to school. Now, I'm just, you know, winging it at this point because I've only just begun to look into this. So I, I, I don't know that I know anything about it. I just thought the correlation was very interesting. Yeah, you know, well, and it, it shores up something that we've seen uh, constantly over the last couple of years, and that is no matter what, the people in authority simply cannot admit that they were wrong about anything. Yeah ever. It's seamless, isn't it? And they just segue into the latest thing. Uh, This business that's going on in Canada is striking in that regard. You know, at the exact moment when all of this nonsense is beginning to to die down and any reasonable, legitimate uh, reason for imposing mandates on people, whether it's the face diaper, whether it's the vaccination requirements, lockdowns, any of that stuff has pretty much gone away. Canada declares martial law against people who try to question whether these mandates should remain in effect. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy watching these mandates drop right and left. I think Washington, D.C., quietly did away with their mandates. And and yet uh, the president and, and, and Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, seemed mm-hmm. determined to hang on to this to the bitter end. Yeah, uh, particularly in Canada. But also, it's interesting here, the inverse, as you mentioned, uh, and, and, and particularly in areas like Washington, D.C., which is kind of the Vatican City of sickness psychosis, uh, and also Massachusetts and New York, which have been among the most rabid enforcers of all of this. Hmm, I wonder why it could be. Could it possibly be that there is a midterm election coming up in about seven months and the realization that they might actually be held accountable for tormenting the people of their states for the past two plus years? Uh, you know, I wonder if there's a correlation there. What do you think? Yeah, it's hey, watching what's happening in Canada, I'm reading it simply as this is this is the playbook that other western nations are going to follow. And so, maybe we could talk for a minute about what you've seen over the last week in in Canada and and any thoughts you have on uh, Trudeau's clampdown. 
Well, it's terrifying. You know, what's particularly terrifying about it is the way they're colluding. The government is colluding with banks and financial institutions to summarily seize people's money and their ability thereby to function economically. And are you going to pay your bills if they seize your your bank account and frozen your assets without even a pretense of any kind of due process at all? All that all the uh, the regime has to do now is assert that you've been involved in this is the word they use mischief. What does that mean mischief? And uh, or even and, and that encompasses even giving uh, you know giving a donation to some group that the government believes is guilty of having been involved in quote unquote mischief. Uh, in effect, they're just saying, look, if we don't like what you're doing, uh, we are going to cripple your ability to live. Um, doesn't even necessary to to send the body armored goons to your place to hut, hut, hut you and cart you off to a cage. If they've taken away all your money, how are you going to, how are you going to live? It's a really alarming thing because we're just as vulnerable to that sort of extrajudicial uh, action here. And we've already seen the extent of collusion between government and between corporations here to enforce some of the worst uh, of the sickness kabuki over the past couple of years. And I can absolutely foresee the same sort of thing happening here with regard to money. It's very alarming. And, you know, it makes me want to take everything I've got out of the banks and put it into some kind of hard currency. And that's, that was my next question. I wanted to pick your mind a little bit about what, uh, mm-hmm. what do you see as viable alternatives? I mean, I, I agree with you. If you can't hold it in your hands, you, you probably can't really assume that it's yours. Yeah, I think there are two alternatives. The first, of course, is the hard currency, you know, which isn't technically legal currency, but nonetheless, it has value. It has intrinsic value in and of itself, and it's commonly understood that it's uh, something that is acceptable in terms of representing value, which means you could certainly barter it uh, and use it to get things that you need, maybe not at Walmart, but certainly within your community, uh, within it, with people that you know who may have things that you need and are willing to, to conduct business on that basis. Another thing that, that you could do uh, is simply get, while you can, uh, all of the things that will be necessary if we ever get to a point where they freeze up our bank accounts and we can't function. This includes things like food. It includes things, uh, uh, you know, like tools. It includes anything you can think of that would make it possible for you to continue to function uh, in an environment where your ability to work within the system and transact business within the system has been has been taken away from you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think, is it Dan Bongino who talks all the time about we've got to build parallel economies? And I think this underscores yeah. um, the, the work is already going on. But, uh, folks, we got, we got to find ways to circumvent a system that in order to, to live, you've got to bend the knee. I, that's that's it's unacceptable. Re- yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, that they're, they're, the fangs are out now. And if you think about it, you, know, you think the fangs would have been out a year ago when the hysteria was at peak pitch. But now that it's dying down and people are beginning to, uh, you know, poke their heads up and wanting to live again, uh, that's why the fangs are really being bared because they can't stand that idea that we might ever return to normal and they might have to give back some of this, uh, this essentially arbitrary, unchecked power that they've acquired in the name of combating the spread. And uh, I think they're absolutely freaking out that uh, the whole narrative is falling apart that word has gotten out and the people are done with it and have had enough of it and aren't going to put up with it anymore. And how do you handle that? Well, the best way to handle it is to do what Trudeau did. You know, this is a guy, you know, to, to not to not overemphasize it. This is a guy who, who gave a eulogy for Fidel Castro. Now, I don't know whether he's actually Fidel Castro's illegitimate son, as has been alleged, but he's certainly his spiritual son. He oh, yeah. complimented El Comandante and lauded 
his his reign over the Cuban people for 50 years and how uh, how his rule was so ben- beneficial to the people of Cuba. This was a brutal, awful, thug tyrant, you know, on par with Mao. Uh, and, and and Trudeau admires the guy. This tells you a great deal about the kind of guy that Trudeau is. No, absolutely. And, and it, you know, the, the situation in Canada... It looks like the police have moved in. They have exercised violence, of which there was none until the police showed up. But uh, I don't think this thing is over by a long shot, simply because it wasn't just truckers. It was people of every stripe who were saying, get your boot off my neck. Yeah, I think, you know, what's instructive here is a historical parallel. Um, Lenin purposefully styled his minority movement Bolshevik, which in Russian means majority. He wasn't the majority. He was a fringe minority. And he portrayed and framed the people who opposed his radical communism as Mensheviks, the minority. Now, how does that apply to Canada? Well, here's how I think it applies. I think Trudeau and the government were extraordinarily worried that they were no longer able to frame the people who opposed the mandate as a fringe minority. In fact, as you say, these were ordinary Canadians, normal people, not violent people, just people who were exasperated. Uh, at, at having a boot on their neck for absolutely no legitimate reason. And it's very problematic for an authoritarian regime when it loses its legitimacy, when it becomes painfully obvious to everybody that this isn't a fringe movement of misogynist white supremacists. It is the ordinary Canadian people who are tired of it, and that is why they had to act in the way that they did. And now, having acted, this is where it gets scary, I think. What's next? You know, they have given people essentially no option now other than Submit to completely arbitrary tyranny, period. Shut up, do what we tell you, the boot's on your neck, or, you know, the next thing. They, they, if you can't go out in public with a sign and redress grievances pre, uh, peacefully, if you can't uh, appeal to, to, to other people in the country, hey, look, this is wrong, we shouldn't be doing this, in a very peaceful way, what alternative is left for people other than to submit? And I think a lot of people in Canada have had, have had to decide, you know, we're not going to submit. And I think we're going to see the fallout of that at some point in the very near future. Okay, hold that thought. We've got to take a very quick break here. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. When we come back, we'll, we'll continue our discussion of some of the things going on. Something I would ask people to notice, too, is the conspicuous silence of most Western leaders as Canada has engaged in this crackdown. Why do you suppose they're so quiet? Well... Could it be they're planning to implement similar measures in in their respective jurisdictions? Food for thought. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And Eric, you know, in addition to the considerations of, okay, we've got this this crackdown, we've got economic warfare being waged against people, give me some of your thoughts on uh, where where does it go from here in terms of um, people being able to uh, to freely move about. Now that we're seeing, you know, different places drop the mandates and, and some, some admitting, look, it really didn't do any good. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like the, the people, I, I wonder, are we going to see a massive exodus of people who've just had enough from, like, like we've seen over the last, you know, year particularly, from blue areas into uh, red areas? 
Well, probably, you know, I can tell you that in my area, there has been an influx of people from those areas and, and understandably so the quality of life uh, in, in those, uh, in those blue states has become insufferable and doubly so because you're paying through the nose for the privilege of being locked down and, uh, and, and not being allowed to uh, even take advantage of all the things that supposedly are the upsides of living in one of these uh, highly hip and urban areas. What, what's the point of it if you can't go to a show or go to any of those good restaurants without wearing your face diaper and presenting your vaccine papers? And I think, by the way, that that's part of the reason why some of these blue states have begun to temporarily lift the restrictions. I think that they have seen probably a catastrophic reduction not only in um, the, the revenue that businesses are earning from that, but also the tax revenue. Nobody's talking about this, but I suspect that if you dug into it, you would find that to be the case. And, uh, you know, they know at the end of the day that they can't operate if they haven't got the resources and the money. So now they're trying to, you know, dangle the carrot in front of the donkey and hope that maybe the donkey doesn't bolt. Um, I think it's too late for that. I think people have had enough. Um, and my sense of it is that we're coming to a kind of fulcrum point in this, not just in, in Canada, but also in the United States, they're going to attempt, I think, one final uh, Ardennes-style push um, to get to get what they want, which is this this total control system, including digital currency, including the vaccine pass. And I think that they're going to use any means that they, they can grab to accomplish that. And the question becomes whether we, or rather enough of us, uh, are going to stand up and say, no, that's not acceptable, and do whatever has to be done to prevent that from happening. Yep. And and I know this is the question that it's on a lot of people's minds. That's when is it ethical? When is when is it a moral thing to resist? You know, to to engage in peaceful civil disobedience uh, to this kind of thing. And I you know I can answer for myself because I, I they crossed that threshold some time ago for me. Yeah. But um, I, sure. I I hope people will continue to ask themselves that question and and more than just ask it, act on it. Well, sure, and that's what the convoy, the freedom convoy, did. Those guys were entirely peaceful. Uh, they weren't doing anything to threaten or hurt anybody, but they were threatened and hurt. I watched a, a video the other day of the, the RCMP. You know, it used to be something that you thought of kind of in the way American points thought of, like the California Highway Patrol, you know, officer-friendly. These are, these are not thugs. These are nice guys, you know, who are out there to protect uh, good people from bad people. I saw them charge uh, the, the convoy protesters who were on foot wearing uh, on their horses, and they trampled an old woman and just kept on going. Did you happen to see that? Oh, yeah. It it was sickening. And and what's worse is, you know, there were tweets that later surfaced of police officers up there in Canada who were cheering about it, laughing about it. Ha, ha, ha. Good, good show, old boy. I mean, just there's there's such a disconnect. And and I'm, I'm curious, you know, there's a, there's an American freedom convoy that's shaping up right now. Yeah. I, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is, is this likely well, to have a similar effect on the political class? Are they going to are they going to? lash out like, like Trudeau did? I think uh, it, it's another potentially very dangerous moment. Um, I think it was yesterday or perhaps the day before uh, that Biden um, re-upped the emergency that, that the orange man had declared some two years ago, right. which is astounding. What's the emergency, right? I mean, there's it's just like with Trudeau and his imposition of essentially martial law based on what exactly? You know, I mean, even the, even the, the science and all of these people are admitting that uh, cases, the cases is all collapsing and that, that the death rates are, are way down. And there's not a, you know, there's certainly not an emergency, even according to their metrics. You know, maybe there's something going around and sure, it's something that should be taken seriously if you're elderly and all of these other things. But it's not an emergency. It's insane to characterize it as an emergency. But nonetheless, he re-upped that, which, of course, is the source waters of all of these kind of 
plenipotentiary arbitrary powers that the state has assumed, including the federal government. And sure, I think they're spoiling for a fight. And I think they'd like very much uh, to have an excuse, a January 6th style excuse uh, to frame what's happening as some sort of insurrection uh, to the sequel. And I worry that, you know, I mean, this is a, almost a paranoid thought, but we live in paranoid times, that they may have inserted agent provocateurs within this convoy that's coming to D.C. and that somebody's going to do something really stupid that will then, that, that will then serve as the, the pretext justification for some kind of uh, completely disproportionate and brutal uh, counter response. Yeah, I maybe it's just because I'm 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 blind or I'm I'm coming at this from a place where I'm I'm tone deaf and can't can't see the the nuances here. But when you push and bully people nonstop, not just for the last two years, but but even before that, and yeah. then suddenly people finally say enough, stop shoving yeah. me around. You don't get to play the victim. If you have been the bully and someone stands up to you, you don't get the victimhood mantle. But that's exactly what these people in positions of authority are trying to do. Sure, absolutely. And they're setting it up as a kind of fate accompli by, once again, giving people no real alternative. You know, there's no pressure relief valve any longer. What are you going to do uh, when what's being imposed on you is being imposed arbitrarily without any way to redress it within the system as by voting or as by uh, recalling a politician. They've just essentially declared themselves to be the deciders in perpetuity in the name of a sickness that never ends because people are going to get sick forever, no matter from what. So, you know, when's the end point to this? Well, there is no end point to it. That's the whole point. All of this is the, the, the new basis for them to assert their unlimited authority over us. And they have the affrontery to tell us that they're doing it to keep us safe. Wow. Well, okay, let's talk about some solutions here. I know you and I are resource, okay. resourceful guys. We're not about to, to just sit here and wring our hands over it. What are some yeah. of the things that uh, that make sense to, for a person to solidify their position to where they they can't be um, coerced into going along with with tyranny? I know you're raising chickens, for instance. You've you've yeah. got to, so, uh, some barnyard friends that'll help provide protein yep. for you. Yeah. Well, you know, I was fortunate enough long before any of this truly awful stuff began to relocate to a rural area. You know, I, I thank God that I was uh, fortunate enough to make that decision um, to have some land and to be as far away from an urban area as possible. I think that's an important thing. And to get back to what we were talking about earlier, I think doing everything that we can to form our own decentralized networks with our friends, with our families, deal with people who share our points of view and simply disconnect from these centralized and corporatized structures uh, that are our enemies, that are, are seeking, you know, it's not too strong a term, to enslave or at least to ensurf us, and over which we really have no realistic mechanisms of control. You know, it's the phone tree. You call up your, your big corporation, whatever it happens to be, whether it's an insurance company, a credit card company, and you listen to the phone tree. You know, press one, listen to the automated AI robot lady tell you what to do. It's frustrating. It's infuriating. Whereas if you deal with the guy down the street, you know, the guy who runs uh, the, the local country store, let's say, you know him and he knows you and you can deal with each other face to face on a human basis. And I think that's what we need to recover. Here, here, Eric, let's uh, let's direct our listeners to your site to tell them where to find it. Tell mm-hmm. them what they're going to find when they get there. Well, it's epautos.com and I like to call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site. So it's uh, it, it's ostensibly focused chiefly on cars and on driving, but far beyond that, we get into a lot of moral, ethical, and philosophical things as well. 
which is unavoidable at this juncture in our history. You know, we can't just be gearheads going down the drive-in to pop the hoods of our cars and see what's under the, under the hood. Uh, politics now, you know, much as we rue it and regret it, has permeated everything. So I try to, and my readers try to, interpret and analyze what's going on with cars, with transportation, through that prism. And I think it helps to make a point that might perhaps be difficult uh, to make otherwise. Here, here. Eric, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, and let's talk again next week. Sounds good, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com and tell you that right now, I believe this is for a limited time, so don't put this off too long. 45% savings off retail price on ReadyWise food storage. This is the message that Kendall asked me to communicate to you. I don't know if you've been sitting on the fence wondering, well, well should I do some uh, food storage? Should I, should I stock up on a little bit just in case? Let me say that number again. 45% you could save off the retail price on ReadyWise food storage. Now, this does not include free shipping and, you know, no sales tax. But 45%, that's pretty significant. If you're so inclined, click on the link I provide in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Take a look at what uh, they have to offer and maybe save yourself some money. Could be worth your time. I think one of the most interesting things about the times that we live in is how it's starting to get really clear. I mean, you know, there are people waking up every day. Uh, you know, if you haven't changed your pronouns in your in your bio on Twitter to awake and concerned, you're probably getting close. But something I'm noticing, and I notice a lot of other people are starting to pick up on this as well, is there are battling narratives. Right now, there is a total tug of war taking place for your mind and my mind. And if you don't see the battling narratives yet, just, you know, hang on. It's getting more clear. So what exactly are these narratives? Well, Jordan Schachtel has a terrific explanation of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset. And in this case, he's talking about the the Great Narrative Project. And this is worth paying attention to because this, this explains a great deal of the conflict that we're seeing right now. It also helps you to understand that, you know, those of us who've been saying all along that, uh, you know, all these measures for public health, they were never really about public health. They were about gaining compliance from the entire population. It was an opportunity to lock people down and condition them mentally to where they will obey and they'll go along because someone in authority said so. Very interesting stuff. Jordan Schachtel says, time is of the essence, and Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum are here to save you from yourself. The climate emergency has arrived, and we have no time to waste. The environment is on the brink of disaster, and climate change is an existential threat. Now, Klaus Schwab, the head of the infamous World Economic Forum, hammers home the aforementioned call to action on virtually every page of his latest manifesto, The Great Narrative, 
which acts as part two of his Great Reset book series. In recognizing the end of COVID mania, the great narrative is an attempted reminder to keep us on edge. It's a grand call to take sweeping action to fight the climate emergency via Klaus Schwab's credentialed elite. By the way, Justin Trudeau is one of those, (laughs) just in case you were wondering. It relentlessly hammers home the apparent necessity of taking dramatic, tyrannical measures to intervene in the climate. And by intervening in the climate, he means radically reorienting every nation on Earth by imposing a totalitarian global governance order. According to Schwab, the world must be rapidly transformed according to the designs of a technocratic elite, and we must adopt the ideas and policy preferences of 50 hand-picked narrators interviewed for the book, who he describes as global thinkers and public intellectuals. Now, Schwab describes the great narrative as a book that goes beyond the realm of theory, serving as a call to action. The author says, We adopt the view that as they recover from the pandemic and embark on a path to radical and accelerated change, our societies and economies should be attuned to the need of needs of our global commons. Now, while Schwab entertains a variety of ideologies and political perspectives, there's one group of people who are to be, dismi- who are to be dismissed whole cloth. That group, of course, is individuals and groups that do not buy into his climate narrative. Schwab cannot hide his disdain for these rogue actors who he notes with disgust are largely located in the United States. According to Schwab, the enemies of his kumbaya world include nationalists, populists, individualists, and those who support free markets. Sorry to break the news to you, but you're probably one of them. Schwab describes this cohort of supposed evildoers as conspiracy theorists who are responsible for all the world's ills. These individuals prop up anti-science movements that prolong the waning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Schwab writes, adding that this group is hindering both public health and, more fundamentally, our ability to move forward in unison. Anyway, enough of those evildoers who draw the ire of the author. Schwab has his eyes on the prize, and there is no time to waste. Climate action, sustainability, inclusivity, global cooperation, health and well-being are the most important issues to address in our times, he writes. Not moving right away and decisively would render our biosphere so hostile as to derail global economic growth and further endangering political and social stability. In one page after another, the World Economic Forum chief showcases his ideological commitment to the climate agenda. Climate change is the greatest collective action problem we've ever been confronted with, he says, adding that humanity has never faced an endeavor more complex, ambitious, and far-reaching than arresting the collapse of our ecosystem and stabilizing the climate. Man, that's pretty impressive. You know, human beings actually are going to control the climate. I'll believe that the day they uh, can put the cork back in that uh, Tongan volcano. Anyhow, Schachtel says, Klaus Schwab has an unbelievable God complex. And he frequently reminds the reader of his apparently unlimited technocratic faculties. He routinely reveals that he believes his group of colleagues have deity-like powers, and that once they unite their overall expertise, these technocrats, once in charge of all of us, can bring about unprecedented happiness and order. Schwab considers inequality, particularly on the financial side, <clears throat> excuse me, to be of utmost importance. But rather than create an opportunity for the masses, he prefers a system of state control, which in his view would reduce demonstrations and social unrest. Schwab and his co-author advocate for a new social contract, 
and proposes a variety of solutions that will help bring the climate agenda forward. For instance, he advocates for the consolidating of global central banks around climate action. Acknowledging that this transition period may be brutal to some, they advocate for the harnessing of economic productivity through nature-based solutions. Schwab and his cohorts also discuss the advent of the bioeconomy, or the targeted destruction of reliable energy, while forcing people to eat alternative food protein sources like beans and bugs. Another solution is that of climate engineering, such as blocking out the sun to attempt to manipulate global temperatures. I think Mr. Burns did this once on an episode of The Simpsons. Anyway, Jordan Schachtel says, Klaus Schwab is a comic book villain, and in the great narrative he exposes the truly insane extremist agenda of the World Economic Forum, which through its Davos Forum acts as the go-to policy and ideas shop of the ruling class. Now, it's important to read this book so that you're aware of the great narratives that will soon emerge from the global elites. Rarely do you find such genuine, overt evil in this world. Claws in the economic forum, through the attempted Trojan horse hijacking of our freedoms via the climate emergency, fit the bill. Pretty interesting stuff. You know, there's there's a clip that's circulating out there, too. And I I was going to play it, but Schwab's... uh, accent is very very thick so it can be hard to understand it without subtitles but this is from 2015 i believe and it's him praising uh, uh justin trudeau as well as others as you know young leaders that we have vetted and we are putting them into into different cabinets and the governments around the world you know i mean it's he, he's very proud of the fact that uh, they have been able to to bring their people to the table by the way, Canada's finance minister, the one who says this economic warfare that Canada is pursuing on its citizens, will be made permanent. She's also one of his, uh, I don't know what the right word is, his protégés? Anyway. Yeah. It sounds like conspiracy theory, right? Oh, sure, Brian, they're all just plotting to take over the world. and They're going to, you know, impose a new world order or something. I don't know if that's the case, but if they're not, man, they're missing a good opportunity. This is this is exactly what they appear to be trying to do. And there's actually a lawmaker from Denmark who shared the, it's 2030. I own nothing and have no privacy, and I've never been happier. I mean, you've heard, you've heard these phrases from time to time. I've reported on this. Others have reported on it. The question is, why do local leaders go along with it? And it does. It trickles down to the local level. It trickles to the state level. <clears throat> it's, it's very clear that there's a lot of money at stake. The, the monetary systems have this all tied up, you know, to where, you know, if, if you... It, I, I really see the stage being set for where if you do not toe the line, basically you become an unperson in society. We freeze your accounts, just like they're doing in Canada. We seize your money. We seize your property. I mean, it seems like a pretty effective way to uh, to persuade or coerce people into doing whatever they're told to do. How many of us can truly live independently? Right? There are a few people out there who are off the grid. Life ain't easy, but they're going to make it. I worry that the rest of us may be getting a crash course in what it's like to homestead. But I would rather do that than bend the knee to the likes of Klaus Schwab or any of the people who are working with him. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to my show notes. It's, you know, this ain't Pulitzer Prize winning stuff, but just understand that I spend most of my waking hours looking for the best information that I can find that actually sheds light on what's happening. There are some terrific resources out there. In fact, I really need, I've got to update my uh, re, my resources for wrong thinkers just because I'm adding a number of different Substack accounts of folks who are just solid thinkers. But I take, I take the time every day while you're busy doing what you're doing. I am combing through trying to find the best, credible, nonpartisan, non-agendized information that can better help us understand the world. And then that's, uh, that's what I share in my show notes. And if you follow those links, you'll find these articles to be well-sourced, well-written, and above all, principled. Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with everything, nor does it mean that, uh, that you should be expected to agree with everything. But it's hard to find good information these days. And this, this comes back to that battle of the narratives that I was re- referencing in the last segment. And it's really a tough time to be a voice of dissent. Glenn Greenwald, by the way, has a terrific essay on how neoliberals are using the weapons of despotism to, re- to repress all viewpoints but their own. He says, when it comes to distant and adversarial countries, we're taught to recognize tyranny through the use of telltale tactics of repression. And these are just a few of those tactics. Dissent from orthodoxies is censored. Protests against the state are outlawed. Dissenters are harshly punished with no due process. Long prison terms are doled out for political transgressions rather than crimes of violence. Journalists are treated as criminals and spies. Opposition to the policies of political leaders are recast as crimes against the state. Now, when a government that is adverse to the West engages in such conduct, it's not just easy, but it's obligatory to malign it as despotic. Thus, one can find on a virtually daily basis articles in Western press citing the government's use of those tactics in Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, and whatever countries the West has an interest in disparaging. Articles about identical tactics from regimes supported by the West, from Riyadh to Cairo, well, those are a lot rarer. But Greenwald says that the use of these repressive tactics render these countries and their populations subject to autocratic regimes is considered undebatable. But when these weapons are wielded by Western governments, the precise opposite framework is imposed. Describing them as despotic is no longer obligatory, but virtually prohibited. That tyranny only exists in Western adversaries, but never in the West itself, is treated as a permanent axiom of international affairs as if Western democracies are divinely shielded from the temptations of genuine repression. Greenwald says, indeed, to suggest that a Western democracy has descended to the same level of authoritarianism or authoritarian repression as the West's official enemies is to assert a proposition deemed intrinsically absurd or even vaguely treasonous. Now, he says, the implicit guarantor of this comforting framework is democracy. Western countries, according to this mythology, can never be as repressive as their enemies because Western governments are at least elected democratically. Now, this assurance, superficially appealing though it may be, completely collapses with the slightest critical scrutiny. The premise of the U.S. Constitution and others like it is that majoritarian despotism is dangerous in the extreme. 
The Bill of Rights consists of little more than limitations imposed on the tyrannical measures majorities might seek to democratically enact. Like the expression of ideas cannot be criminalized even if majorities want them to be. Religious freedom cannot be abolished even if large majorities demand it. Life and liberty cannot be deprived without due process, even if nine out of ten citizens favor doing so, etc. More inconveniently still, many of the foreign leaders were instructed to view as despots are popular or even every bit as democratically elected as our own beloved freedom-safeguarding officials. So Greenwald says as potent as this mythological framework is, reinforced by large media corporations over so many decades, it cannot withstand the increasingly glaringly glaring use of precisely these despotic tactics in the West. He says, watching Justin Trudeau, the sweet, well-mannered, well-raised, good boy prince of one of the West's nicest countries, featuring such a pretty visage, even on the numerous occasions when marred by blackface, but to see him invoke and then harshly impose dubious emergency civil liberties-denying powers is just the latest swing of the hammer causing this Western sculpture to crumble. In sum, you are required by Western propaganda to treat the two images he posts below as fundamentally different. Indeed, huge numbers of people in the West vehemently denounce the one on the left while enthusiastically applauding the one on the right. But such brittle mythology can only be sustained for so long. So the picture on the left is a Reuters headline, Russia freezes bank accounts linked to opposition politician Navalny. Yeah, we're supposed to denounce that. What a horrible thing to do. Who are these people? But the other one is a much more recent headline. Trudeau vows to freeze anti-mandate protesters' bank accounts. Oh, good for him. He's just restoring order and just keeping us safe. You see how it works? The decades-long repression of Julian Assange at WikiLeaks standing alone demonstrates how grave neoliberal attacks on dissent have become. Many are aware of key parts of this repression, particularly the decade-long effective detention of Assange, but they've either forgotten or, due to media malfeasance, never knew several of the most extreme aspects. And he goes into a number of these aspects. I mean, he he covers, you know, chapter and verse, tells you about uh, under what happened under the apartment, I'm sorry, the Obama Department of Justice under Attorney General Eric Holder, failing to find evidence of criminality after convening a years-long grand jury investigation, the then-chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, uh, Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut, succeeding in pressuring financial services companies like MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, and Bank of America to terminate WikiLinks accounts and thus banish them from the financial system, choking off their ability to receive funds from supporters or pay their bills. Lieberman and his neocon allies also pressured Amazon to remove WikiLeaks from its hosting services, causing the whistleblower group to be temporarily offline. Now, all of that succeeded in crippling WikiLeaks' ability to operate, despite being charged with no crime. Indeed, as the Department of Justice admitted, it could not prove that the group committed any crimes. Yet this extra legal punishment still was meted out. And these tactics pioneered against WikiLeaks, excluding dissenters from the financial system, coercing tech companies to deny them Internet access without a whiff of due process, have now become standard weapons. Trudeau's government seizes and freezes bank accounts with no judicial process. The charity fundraising site GoFundMe first blocked millions of dollars raised for the truckers and then announced it would redirect them to other charities, then refunded the donations when people pointed out rightly that their original plan amounted to a form of stealing. When an alternative funding site, GiveSendGo, raised millions more for the truckers, 
Canadian courts blocked its distribution. And it was just over a year ago when Democratic politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez successfully pressured tech companies Google and Apple to remove Parler from its stores and then pressured Amazon to remove the social media site from its servers at exactly the time the social media alternative became the single most downloaded app in America. Now, he talks more about Assange. He talks about the uh, mass protests in Barcelona back in 2017. I'm going to skip down here because we, we won't have time to cover a ton of this. But this last decade of history that he outlines is crucial to understand the dissent-eliminating framework that has been constructed and implemented in the West. Greenwald says this framework has culminated thus far with the stunning multi-pronged attacks on Canadian truckers by the Trudeau government. But it's been a long time in the making, and it's inevitable that it will find still more extreme expressions. It is, after all, based in the central recognition that there is mass, widespread anger, even hatred, toward the neoliberal ruling class throughout the West. Brexit and the rise of far-right parties in places where their empowerment was previously unthinkable, including Germany and France, is unmistakable proof of that. Rather than sacrifice some of the benefits of inequality that have generated much of that rage or placated or appease it with symbolic concessions, Western neoliberal elites have instead opted for force, a system that crushes all forms of dissent as soon as they emerge in anything resembling an effective, meaningful, or potent form. So be 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 ready. It's coming. There's more of it coming. This is really disturbing stuff, and this is why it's so imper- imperative, he says, for the Democratic Party and their media allies to describe that four-hour riot at the Capitol on January 6th as an insurrection, an attempted coup. Because if these were just mere protesters or even just rioters, then all the standard protections and legal safeguards apply to them, as liberals demanded be applied to protect BLM and Antifa protesters, even the ones who used violence. If, however, they're part of a broader insurrectionary movement, an ongoing attempt to overthrow the U.S. government, well, then they're elevated from ordinary political adversaries into a faction of sustained criminality. And anything and everything from censorship and detention to extra-legal means of banishment, like no-fly lists and exclusion from the financial system, become justified and even necessary. This is, uh, this is the thing you got to watch out for. It's moving goalposts. You may not be a rioter. You may not even be a protester. But if you're not marching in lockstep, you better be prepared to be banished from polite society. Might be time to start making some uh, plan B options for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I am your humble servant, a guy with uh, no fancy credentials, no fame, no fortune, not even exceptional mental abilities, just an insatiable desire for freedom and a willingness to speak things that uh, may potentially be unpopular. And I thank you for for giving me a shot. If you're a longtime wrong thinker or just uh, new to wrong think, 
I think you're going to find something here to uh, to wet your whistle, so to speak, as far as uh, talking about the world around us, understanding what's taking place, and more importantly, understanding what you and I stand for and what we can do to improve the world around us in in our own our own unique ways. My show is brought to you by LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. You got to be, you, you've, you've really got to be willing to uh, to stick your neck out these days. If you're going to speak about uh, the things that are going on, there's two things that are going to happen. You're going to anger the people who are, you know, just happy with the status quo or at least feel like this is the safest place and there's order in the status quo, even if we're all required to wear masks and be vaxxed and carry vaccine passports. By the way, have you noticed how quickly these mandates are dropping left and right? Kind of makes you wonder, why did President Biden extend that state of emergency beyond March 22nd? Hmm. Got to be something to that. But it's it's not just the people who are pushing that system, the, the people who want control. You also run the risk of offending people who just don't want to encounter bad news or don't want to encounter things that, that challenge conceptions that they may have held. They may not even be, you know, on board with Klaus Schwab and the economic, World Economic Forum. But man, they don't like to hear the, the bad news. Well, I'm not here to burden you with with the bad news, but I think at some level we have to acknowledge there are hard facts that have to be faced. There are things that uh, that we need to look at squarely, see them for what they are. But I think the key here is throughout that process and as we evaluate what's going on, we should never lose sight of who we are and what we stand for and be driven by that far more than the idea of being driven by, well, this is who I'm against, and here's what I hate, and here's what I can't stand. There's enough people in the world out there who feel like, you know, I'm doing something substantive just by, you know, declaring my opposition to whatever. No, that's 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 kind of a, a cheap way to to appear to be a good person. It's not the same thing as going through the pains of actually trying to live your life as a good person. Don't make the mistake of confusing one for the other. One of those things makes the world a a measurably better place. The other one just makes noise and virtue signals on social media. Don't be part of that one. Interestingly enough, the conflict that's playing out in front of us is a perfect illustration of those whose influence is virtual versus those who actually work and live in the real world, you know, like truck drivers. I want you to check out a piece from N.S. Lyon, on when reality honks back. This is a Substack account, for the, the upheaval.substack.com. I have a link in the show notes at the com. N.S. Lyons says, Like many, I've spent the last couple of weeks a bit entranced by the trucker protests happening in Canada and now around the world from Paris to Wellington. He says, I initially tried to document every twist and turn of the Freedom Convoy drama, but I found it nearly impossible. Events continue to unfold very quickly. As I write this, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just invoked the Emergencies Act, in other words, martial law, allowing him to suspend civil liberties and basically do whatever he wants to crush the protests. So they may soon be quelled or perhaps not. No one can yet say precisely how all this may end. But in any case... News and commentary detailing the protests can now be found everywhere, so I'm going to just assume you already have a familiarity with what's happening, as I want to try to distill a few more unique thoughts on why I find these protests so striking. 
Specifically, why all this seems like such a perfect reflection of the reality war. Now, this is an essay that he's published previously, and he has a link to this in this article. Really worth your time. N.S. Lyons says, In that essay, I noted how from the perspective of those with the most wealth and power, as well as the technocratic managers and intelligentsia, our priestly class, keepers of the gnosis or knowledge, digital technology and global networks seem to have created an unprecedented opportunity for theory to wrest control from recalcitrant nature, for liquid narrative to triumph over mundanely static reality, and for all the corrupt traditional bonds of the world to be severed, its atoms reconfigured in a more correct and desirable manner. In this mostly subconscious form of luxury Gnosticism, the middle and lower classes can then be sold dispossession and disembodiment as liberation, while those as yet essential working classes who still cling distastefully to the physical world can mostly be ignored until the day they can be successfully automated out of existence. He says, I also quoted a passage from the late Christopher Lash's book, The Revolt of the Elites, that's worth repeating here. Quote, the thinking classes are fatally removed from the physical side of life. Their only relation to productive labor is that of consumers. They have no experience of making anything substantial or enduring. They live in a world of abstractions and images, a simulated world that consists of computerized models of reality, hyper-reality as it's been called, as distinguished from the palatable, immediate physical reality inhabited by ordinary men and women. Their belief in social construction of reality, the central dogma of postmodernist thought, reflects the experience of living in an artificial environment from which everything that resists human control, unavoidably everything familiar and reassuring as well, has been rigorously excluded. Control has become their obsession in their drive to insulate themselves against risk and contingency, against the unpredictable hazards that afflict human life, the thinking classes have seceded, not just from com the common world around them, but actually from reality itself. End quote. That's pretty amazing stuff. So, let's consider using this protest in Canada as a lens and vice versa. N.S. Lyons says, to simplify, let's first identify and categorize two classes of people in society who we could say tend to navigate and interact with the world in fundamentally different ways. The first is a class that has been a part of human civilization for a really long time. These are the people who work primarily in the real physical world. Maybe they work directly with their hands, like a carpenter or a mechanic or a farmer. Or maybe they're just a step away. They own or manage a business where they organize and direct employees who work with their hands and buy or sell or move things around in the real world, like a transportation logistics company, maybe. This class necessarily works in a physical location, or they own or operate physical assets that are central to their trade. Now, the second class is different. It is, relatively speaking, a new civilizational innovation, at least numbering in more than a handful of people. This group is the thinking classes that Lash was writing about above. They don't interact much with the physical world directly. They are the handlers of knowledge. They work with information, which might be digital or analog, numerical or narrative. But in all cases, it exists at a level of abstraction from the real world. Manipulation and distribution of this information can influence the real world, but only through informational chains that pass directives to agents that can themselves act in the physical world, kind of like a software program that sends commands to a robot arm on an assembly line. Now, to facilitate this, 
They build and manage abstract institutions and systems of organizational communication as a means of control. Individuals in this class usually occupy middle links in these informational chains in which neither the inputs nor outputs of their role has any direct relationship with or impact on the physical world. They are informational middlemen. This class can therefore do their job almost entirely from a laptop by email or a virtual Zoom meeting. And, they, and they've recently realized they don't even need to be sitting in an office cubicle to do it. So for our purposes here, he says, let's call these classes the physicals and the virtuals, respectively. When considering the causes and character of the current protest and the response to it, N.S. Lyon says, I would say the divide between the physicals and visuals, or virtuals, rather, rather, is by far the most relevant frame of analysis available. In fact, he says, I'd say this is the most, uh, among the most significant divides in all of Western politics today. Much has been made of the working class and their alienation from the elite, but this phrasing comes mixed up with associations about material wealth and economic class that aren't necessarily helpful. Many, though not all, of those who support populist politics in opposition to the elite tend to be either fairly solidly middle-class skilled tradesmen, relatively successful small businessmen, or landholders like farmers, ranchers, real estate entrepreneurs, who are often actually relatively well-off. It is the character of their work that seems to shape the identity and values of each side of the class divide more so than income. So, too, does this difference appear to widen and perhaps even explain the root of the huge and growing gender divide in politics, given the fairly well-established preference on average by men to work with things, which are more concrete, and women to work with people, which is more abstract. We're going to come back to this excellent essay just in a few moments. If you want to check it out, it's linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an essay from N.S. Lyons. This is from the upheaval.substack.com account. It's called Reality Honks Back. You've heard me talk about how we are facing kind of a war on reality. And, you know, it's so interesting to hear this categorized into, if you, if you look at the, the way that uh, we are being divvied up, there are people who still live and work in the physical world, and there are people who live and work in the virtual world. And right now, much of the control of our institutions, our, our systems, rests in the hands of people who work in the virtual world. Yet, they still can't do what they do without the folks who inhabit the physical world, as he'll explain here in a moment. He also shows that this class divide between the virtuals and the physicals also maps very closely on another uh, much-discussed political wedge, and that's the geographic split between cities, where most of the virtuals are concentrated, and the outlying exurbs and rural hinterlands, where the physicals remain predominant. Now, he says, I would suggest the nature of these two classes plays a significant role in shaping the local cultures of these places. And as anyone following events in the United States, the UK, Australia, or Europe over the past few years, such as Brexit or the Yellow Vest protests in France, could tell you by now... Partisan differences between urban metropolitan cores and provinces seem to have become one of the defining features of politics across the Western democratic world. To back this up, he shows a map of the eastern half of the United States showing at very high detail 
the ge- geographic distribution of votes cast in the 2016 presidential election. The urban-rural divide between political parties couldn't be more stark. Basically, the blue spots are little islands, you know, along the East Coast and various large population centers. Whereas much of the country is just as red as red could be. Of course, that's just considered flyover country. Nothing that uh, you people need to be concerned about. Now, he says differences in the Canadian electoral system mean I can't show you a similar map for Canada, but you can rest assured the urban-rural divide there is just as significant. But the most relevant distinction between virtuals and physicals is that virtuals are now everywhere unambiguously the ruling class. In a world in which knowledge is the primary component of value-added production, or so we're told, and economic activity is increasingly defined by the digital and the abstract, they have been the overwhelming winners accumulating financial, political, and cultural status and influence. In part, this is because the ruling class is also a global class, and so has access to global capital. It is global because the world's city brains are directly connected with each other across virtual space and are in constant communication. Indeed, their residents have far more in common with each other, including across national borders, than they do with the local people of their own hinterlands, who are in comparison practically from another planet. But the virtual ruling class has a vulnerability that it has not yet solved. The cities in which their bodies continue to occupy mundane physical reality require a whole lot of physical infrastructure and manpower to function. We're talking things like electricity, sewage, food, the vital Sumatra to Latte supply chain. Ultimately, they remain reliant on the physical world. The great brain hubs of the virtuals float suspended in the expanse of the physicals, complex arterial networks pumping life-sustaining resources inward from their hosts. So when the physicals of the Canadian host body revolted against their control, the virtual class suddenly faced a huge problem. When the truckers rolled their big rigs, which weigh about 35,000 pounds, up to the political elite's doorstep, engaged their parking brakes or removed their wheels entirely, and refused to leave until their concerns were addressed, this was like dropping a very solid boulder of reality in the virtual's front lawn and daring them to remove it without assistance. And because the virtuals do not yet actually have Jedi powers to move things with their minds, the truckers effectively called their bluff on who ultimately has control over the world. Well, it turns out that not only do the physicals still exist and are for now still able to drive themselves into the heart of the cities, they actually still have power, a lot of power. In the middle of a supply chain crisis, those truckers represent the total reliance of the ruling elite on the very people they find alien and abhorrent. To many of the virtuals, this is existentially frightening. The reaction of the virtual ruling class, represented by the absolutely archetypical modern progressive male Justin Trudeau to this challenge, has been extremely telling and rather predictable. Their first reaction was to dismiss the 50,000-strong convoy as representing, in Trudeau's words, a small fringe minority with unacceptable views. Being, after all, divorced from reality, he did not seem to have any understanding of the implications of what was barreling toward him. No one in his government seems to have prepared at all in the days leading up to the truckers' arrival as the Freedom Convoy drove all the way across the country to Ottawa. But once they grasped the situation, the virtual's response was to turn immediately to their default means of dealing with any problem, narrative and informational control. Trudeau checked his diary list of most used phrases and, after fleeing the city for security reasons, 
unleashed all of them at once in one great shotgun blast of smears, saying the truckers were guilty of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-black racism, homophobia, and transphobia, not to mention misogyny and being anti-science. He accused them of flying racist flags and waving swastikas. By the way, only one seems to have ever been spotted before being swiftly ejected by the crowd and announced that he would refuse to meet with them because he would not go anywhere near protests that have expressed hateful rhetoric and violence. He declared Canadians to be shocked and frankly disgusted with the protesters. Now, his class uh, allies leaped to the same line of attack, Catherine McKinney, Ottawa's non-binary social justice-loving counselor accused the Freedom Convoy of promoting very right-wing extremist messages and being part of a movement that is extreme and that is xenophobic. Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly <clears throat> declared them to be increasingly dangerous and hateful. Ontario Premier Doug Ford labeled it an occupation and a siege. The chair of the city's police services board ranted that the siege was part of a nationwide insurrection and a threat to our democracy. Angry demands started being made for Trudeau to call in the military. Now, Canadian state media lustily played along, attempting to ham-fistedly shove the whole phenomenon into an American political frame. The whole convoy was a pseudo-Trumpian grift, organized and led by documented racists and QAnon-style nutters. So yes, anchors gravely compared footage of smiling Canadian flag-waving grandmas, diverse crowds of dancing Sikhs, and children playing in bouncy castles to January 6th and white supremacy. And American outlets like Politico and the New York Times warned of the far right having been galvanized worldwide. Allegations of the protests having been organized and funded by no less than the Russians were seriously aired. Academic extremism experts were trundled onto television to confirm that this was in fact a pack of literal terrorists and that even if the protests were technically entirely peaceful, crime in downtown Ottawa having actually fallen, this was only a maliciously cunning cover to enable mass violence. Now, Facebook and Twitter quickly shut down the accounts the group set up by protesters uh, to communicate leaving hundreds of thousands or uh, hundreds or thousands of members, not only in Canada, but in countries across the world, unable to organize. They cited the need to spread the, to, to, to prevent the spread of misinformation. And if this all seems awfully, awfully synchronized, that's the whole point. MS Lyons says, systematic information control, or what the Chinese Communist Party refers to as public opinion management, is now the entire strategic response of the virtual class to every political problem. They can't move the trucks. The virtual class can't. Their smears alone can't move the trucks. The towing companies in Ottawa refused to move the trucks. Because it turns out, surprisingly, tow truck drivers also drive trucks for a living. There aren't enough police to seize all the trucks because the rank-and-file police in Ottawa were taking vacation in six days and mysteriously not showing up for work. I got to skip ahead here because there's, there's still a lot more in this, but... One thing that you can note is that there was no violence associated with these protests until the police showed up. None until the cops were on the scene. Make of that what you will. But I really would recommend you should check out this article. Reality honks back. <laughs> Again, this is from NS Lions. The upheaval.substack.com. It is linked in my show notes at the Brianhideshow.com. We'll be back, just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here to uh, say thank you to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being a sponsor of this program. And if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, you've likely noticed this is the hottest real estate market that most of us have ever seen. And when you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away right now. That is why I'm recommending the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage as the answer to your problem. Now, this is for anyone who is landing in the state of Utah. These are the folks you need to talk to. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Bottom line reason you need to talk with Heather, her decades of experience in the lending industry will help you make things happen when time is of the essence. And in this market, time is most certainly of the essence. You know, a lot of folks are waking up to the realization that government-controlled digital currencies can become the equivalent of chains. I've got a great article here from Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education making a strong case for how financial censorship, Canada's dystopian financial censorship, shows exactly why we need Bitcoin. Palumbo says all eyes are on Canada. Our northern neighbors crack down against anti-COVID-19 mandate freedom convoy protesters continues to escalate. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has even invoked emergency powers. But things just took an unexpected turn. The Canadian government is even trying to stop people from funding the protests. It's using emergency powers to crack down on crowdfunding platforms such as GoFundMe and GiveSendGo. And now Trudeau is going after cryptocurrency donations being sent to some truckers. The goal here is simple. The government wants to cut off the protesters from money and stop people from funding a cause the government dislikes. Now, if that sounds grossly authoritarian, that's because it is. This is the latest escalation in what some call financial financial censorship or governments colluding with or pressuring financial institutions to squash dissenters and disfavored speech. Yet Canada's disturbing attempted crackdown may actually end up proving just how valuable Bitcoin can be as a means of resisting financial censorship. Bitcoin influencer Anthony Pompliano recently argued on his Substack, every attempt at financial censorship is a marketing campaign for Bitcoin. He says Bitcoin is censorship-resistant money. No one can prevent you from sending it to anyone else. No one can confiscate it from you without your permission. No one can debase the currency. Okay, why is that? Palumbo says, well, there is no centralized authority or company that controls the cryptocurrency. There is no Bitcoin HQ. This stands in contrast to something like GoFundMe, which in fact does have one company in control that the government can lean on to shut something down. Pompliano concluded, if the Freedom Convoy raised money through a censorship-resistant currency, no one could have taken those funds from them. However, there's a catch. And it's that Bitcoin is only censorship resistant under certain conditions. So if you hold your Bitcoin through common third party exchanges such as Coinbase, then there's still a central authority that could be coerced to confiscate funds. This is why a popular saying has emerged in the online cryptocurrency community not your keys, not your crypto. 
Basically, you must have a non-custodial wallet. Hold your own keys to ensure that your Bitcoin cannot fall victim to financial censorship. Now, this isn't as easy or convenient as using a third-party exchange. But Bitcoin diehards think it's absolutely worth the extra effort. If you use Bitcoin in the correct way, meaning taking full ownership, taking self-custody, your money cannot be taken. That's what Bitcoin influencer and the author of Undressing Bitcoin, Leah Heilpern, told Brad Palumbo. Bitcoin is censorship-resistant. I've had my funds frozen before because banks don't like crypto. As a result, I use my Bitcoin to keep my company going and keep everyone paid. So, Bitcoin does indeed offer Canadians a way to outwit their authoritarian government's attempts at financial censorship if they use it properly. And he says the public should be closely following these developments because if you think the U.S. government would never do something similar, you are not paying close enough attention. Excellent article. It's linked in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I'll admit, I have been pretty skeptical and reluctant to to delve into crypto. But I'm finding as I talk with people who have have really made a study of the monetary systems and who I feel are are very well informed on, you know, ways to to hedge against, you know, deflation or hyperinflation, you know, people who've, who've studied the monetary situation and say, okay, the, the current situation is not tenable. And if you're experiencing sticker shock every time you go to the grocery store, you know what I'm talking about. Prices keep going up. Your dollar buys less and less. It's, it's on a collision course with destruction or at least devaluation to the point that it's, it's worthless. Crypto has been very intriguing to me, but I'm, I'm the first to admit I don't understand it well. There's t- I mean, I've followed this for years. For at least the last five years, I've been around people who are pretty well immersed in it. And I feel like, yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've picked up a little bit here and there. But then I start to delve into it a little deeper and realize, holy cow, I am so over my head. So I'm a neophyte. And I, I tell you this just so you understand. I'm not hyping a particular cryptocurrency, but I'm very curious for the reason that uh, if, if your money can just simply be frozen or taken from you by government officials at their whim as it's sitting in the bank, Maybe there needs to be a more secure way to, to keep that money. And in a nutshell, as I understand it, the, the beauty of not just Bitcoin, but, but cryptocurrency is that it relies on blockchain technology. So when people say, well, Brian, you know, this is where's the value in this? This isn't gold or silver. There's no tangible product that you can turn to and say, here, this is what has value. And, and they're right. In that sense, it is a virtual currency. However, the value is found in the system in which those exchanges take place. And it's very valuable. I mean, the, the banks aren't going to like this. So if you're a banker, please, you know, turn away. You may not like what I'm about to share here. But the beauty of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies is that people can instantly make an exchange and there is a permanent, uncounterfeitable ledger of that exchange. But it doesn't require any middleman. So if I want to pay a friend, you know, in Australia for work that they've done for me, they created a logo or something like that, <clears throat> I could I could send that exchange via cryptocurrency through the blockchain without ever having to go to the bank. Instead of having, well, I gotta go to the bank and I gotta make sure that my dollars are gonna translate into whatever the local currency is there, you know, in Australia. Nope. Nope. It, it eliminates the need for any kind of third party involvement. 
It's truly peer-to-peer. You can see why that would, yeah, the people who are, are in, in positions of control and, and positions of, of empowerment and who make a lot of money by, you know, handling your money. Oh, yes, there will be a little fee for that as we convert that. And yes, we do charge a fee every time that you look at your account and it takes them right out of the picture. It's a very decentralizing influence. And maybe I'm just weird, but I like that. We need more decentralization because it's the centralization of control and power that's landed us in this mess in the first place. Now, as Brad Palumbo points out, it's not hard for people who have crypto, you know, to keep it safe. If they have the keys, you know, they they can keep it safe. But the place where you run into the regulatory hurdles is when you try to convert from whatever crypto you're in, be it Ethereum or some other, you know, new new coin, when you try to convert that into dollars, that is where the regulators are waiting to pounce. And would it surprise you to know that the FBI now has has uh, announced that they are starting a new unit concerned exclusively with cryptocurrency enforcement? That's right. Our secret police suddenly are very interested in cryptocurrency, and it's because they understand we don't have control of this. We've got to gain control of it, so that's what they're looking for. I'm still a bit of a skeptic, but it's mainly because I lack knowledge. I'm ignorant of so much of of what goes on in the crypto world. But there's a part of me that says, maybe I need to be putting some income into this and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put in exactly as much as I would be willing to walk away from, but I feel like I should own some if for no other reason that it appears to righteously piss off the people who really want to be in control of me and everybody else. If it causes them that much heartburn, well, maybe I should have some. I mean, for crying out loud, I remember (laughs) back during 1994 when uh, the Clinton administration succeeded in passing their so-called assault weapons ban. I never would have owned a so-called assault rifle until they told me you can't. So the very first thing I did upon the passage of that act was I went to the local pawn shop and said, I'd like an AK, please. And it was a good one. I wish I still had it. It was uh, it was actually quite exhilarating, but it was precisely because somebody in authority was like, no, no, you can't do that. And as a person who understood my rights, albeit imperfectly, that was intolerable. You will not tell me what I can and cannot do. If that's not within your purview, thank you very much. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you or someone you know is involved in sewing or quilting or embroidery, I would encourage you, please click on the link I provide in my show notes for sewingandquiltingcenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. Especially if you live in southern Utah. What a what a marvelous resource to have available to you to not only sell you the machines that you need to, to get to the best out of your hobby, but also they service them. They can teach you how to use them. They have cuddles, fabric. They have all the supplies you need. And best of all, it's a family-owned business. So please, show some love to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. 
Again, you'll find them linked in the show notes. Well, here's a question that I think a lot of us are, are having to ask ourselves. When is it justified to engage in civil disobedience? Now, obviously, I, I've asked this question and answered it quite some time ago. And I, I, but there are still opportunities that come. Okay, is it time? And it could, it could take very mild-mannered forms. You know, I mean, it, uh, it could take the, the form of, uh, you know, not wearing a mask where someone is insisting, you've got to be a mask to wear, you know, to come in here or, or something like that. But I've got a great article here from Aaron Curiati. This is from the Brownstone Institute. Why it is ethical to resist the biosecurity surveillance state. So if you've been having that internal conversation, when is it right to stand up and say, I'm not going along with this? When is it right to sit in the front of the bus, even though the rules say I'm supposed to sit in the back? Here's some food for thought. Aaron Curiati. Curiati. Curiati, sorry, I'm, I'm butchering this, this person's name, says, Peter Leithart at the Theopolis Institute invited me to contribute to this conversation, which begins with a lead article from theologian Doug Farrow, whether there is a moral obligation to, to disobey the coercive mandates, followed by several responses, including mine. So with permission, he's reprinting his piece, The Rising Biosecurity Surveillance Regime. And this is what he says. Doug Farrow has written in the form of a medieval disputatio, a cogent and persuasive defense of civil disobedience in response to vaccine mandates and other unjustifiable COVID measures. For those familiar with my work over the past year, my full endorsement of his position will come as no surprise. Until recently, I'd spent my entire 15-year career as a professor and director of the medical ethics program at University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Last August, I challenged the University of California's vaccine mandate in federal court on behalf of individuals like me who had infection-induced or natural immunity. A few months later, and after twice rejecting my medical exemption request, the university fired me for alleged noncompliance with their vaccine mandate. Now, it was clear then for more than 150 studies and even more apparent today that natural immunity to COVID is superior to vaccine-induced immunity both in terms of efficacy and longevity. Indeed, during the most recent wave, efficacy against Omicron infection of the two-dose mRNA vaccines dropped to zero. A third-dose booster raised that, albeit temporarily, to 37%, but still well below the 50% threshold required by the FDA for COVID vaccine approval. By contrast, natural immunity only saw a modest drop in efficacy against Omicron, and remains well over the 50% threshold. Although vaccine efficacy against severe symptoms initially appeared promising, with time and new variants, it's now clear that these vaccines have failed to control the pandemic. Indeed, in some highly vaccinated regions, for example, the UK, Israel, and Ontario, we're now seeing negative vaccine efficacy. That is, higher rates, not just total numbers of infection among the vaccinated rather than the unvaccinated. The reasons for this, whether antibody-dependent enhancement or original antigenic sin, remain unclear, but the findings are now evident. Even prior to Omicron, we knew that none of the COVID vaccines provided sterilizing immunity. In other words, they did not prevent infection and transmission, in contrast, for example, to the measles vaccine. This empirical finding obviated the the common good argument that one has a duty to get vaccinated for the sake of protecting others. Our one-size-fits-all mandates also fail to consider the most basic epidemiological facts about COVID. For example, that morbidity and mortality 
risks of the coronavirus to a healthy child or adolescent were a thousandfold less than the risks to an elderly person. Our public health authorities overpromised and underdelivered with the vaccines, squandering public trust in the process. And this came on the wake of other failed pandemic policies of 2020, including the failure of masks, social distancing, disinfecting surfaces, and most disastrously, harmful lockdown policies to stop the spread of the virus. Despite all these aggressive mitigation measures, estimates suggest that more than 70% of all Americans, vaccinated and unvaccinated included, have nevertheless been infected with COVID. As I've been arguing for some time now, he says natural immunity remains our primary way out of the pandemic. Yet our public health authorities continue to deploy the dubious vaccinated versus unvaccinated distinction rather than the more empirically defensible, more immune versus less immune distinction. From here, he talks about medical ethics, saying that many of our pandemic policies simply cast aside foundational principles of medical ethics. During the initial lockdowns in 2020, hospitals sat empty for weeks and hospital staff were sent home as we waited for an influx of COVID patients that did not arrive until months later. Healthcare systems spurred by perverse payment incentives from CMS focused narrowly on a single disease, and this biased our COVID hospitalization and death counts and effectively abandoned patients with other medical needs. The disastrous fruits of this myopia include an unprecedented 40% increase in all-cause mortality among working-age adults 18 to 64 last year, most of which was not attributable to COVID deaths. To put this number in context, actuaries tell us that a 10% rise in all-cause mortality represents a once-in-200-year catastrophe. Now, the ethical principle of free and informed medical consent, guaranteed by the Nuremberg Code, the Helsinki Declaration, the Belmont Report, and the Federal Common Rule, was abandoned when vaccine mandates required experimental EAU, EUA vaccines. rather, Transparency, a central principle of public health ethics, likewise was abandoned. He says, along with several colleagues, he had to file a Freedom of Information request to obtain the Pfizer vaccine clinical trial data from the FDA. The agency wanted 75 years to release data they reviewed in only 108 days. And by the way, the judge has ordered that data release in eight months. But in the meantime, thousands of doctors like him have lost their jobs for declining a novel injection whose safety and efficacy data remains hidden from independent scrutiny. The scientific methods suffered under a repressive academic and social climate of censorship and silencing of competing perspectives. And this projected the false appearance of a scientific consensus, a consensus often strongly influenced by economic and political interests. Our ruling class saw in COVID an opportunity to revolutionize how we relate to one another and how we exist in the world. Recall how the phrase the new normal emerged almost immediately in the earliest days of the pandemic. This public health crisis offered the ideal pretext for expanding exceptional state powers beyond all previous limits. Our government and health authorities, our public health authorities, have still not defined the thresholds for what counts as a public health emergency. The supposed legal justification for burdensome COVID countermeasures. By the way, that's a military, not a medical term. Also, serious infringements on civil liberties and censorship of dissenting voices. The assumption of emergency powers by both elected officials and unelected bureaucrats continues indefinitely, with little critical scrutiny and no appropriate checks and balances. The lockdowns of the last two years 
represented the first time in the history of pandemics that we quarantined healthy populations. Those who benefited economically from lockdowns, Amazon, for example, and professionals in the laptop class who could easily work from home, lobbied for these untested measures. The working class bore the brunt of the lockdown burdens and saw massive transfers of their wealth upwards, mostly into the pockets of a few ultra-rich elites. Now, from here, he talks about biosecurity and totalitarianism. I'm just going to skip ahead here and, and here, cutting to the chase. He says, the hour is later than we think. Twilight is near. Continued compliance with manifestly unjust and often absurd mandates will not return us to a normal functioning society. Every good faith or selfless act of compliance on the part of citizens has only resulted in more illogical pandemic countermeasures that further erode our civil liberties, harm our overall health, and undermine human flourishing. There is a human right not enshrined in any constitution, and that is the right to the truth. And he says, I would suggest that no right has been more systematically trammeled over the last two years than this one. Why, I ask, do our public health authorities acknowledge the truth only after the damage from the lie has already been done? For example, only after tens of thousands lost their jobs due to coercive vaccine mandates that have not advanced public health. Who will hold leaders accountable for this malfeasance? So he says, I join uh, Doug Farrow in maintaining firm resistance to the point of civil disobedience is not only permissible under the circumstances, but indeed required if we are to prevent this twilight from fading into night. That's pretty powerful stuff. Yes, there is a link in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.